Hi, I'm Nicholas Chin, and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society's podcast. Joining me today is Patrick Thewlis, who is a research officer at the Department of International Development. Today we're going to be talking about the social determinants of intimate partner violence, which Patrick has researched previously. Thank you for joining us, Patrick. Um, so firstly, can you just give us a brief insight into your research interests generally? Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks, Nick, for having me as well. Uh, it's a good opportunity to at least kind of remind myself of what my research was. Um, the focus of my research has, it kind of tends to fall at the intersection of sociology and public health. Um, in particular, I'm interested in exploring, as you say, the social determinants of intimate partner violence, particularly in the context of Europe. Um, I think what was surprising from the outset was that within Europe there's a relative paucity of quantitative research, and particularly within the area of Europe. Uh, in fact, to a large extent, just economic analysis as well, there seems to be a lot of qualitative research, but on the quantitative aspect there's not so much, and so it still remains relatively unexplored. Um, from a more empirical standpoint, I'd say my research interests are kind of uh, threefold. First being exploring social determinants of this and looking mainly at women's economic empowerment and the influence this has on their propensity uh, to experience um, intimate partner violence. Second, how we can truly model these determinants. I think particularly from a quantitative social science perspective, we want to be able to build models that accurately represent what we're trying to predict but also that can then be used in informing public policy. And, and that's definitely the third reason for myself, is that I wanted to see how the data not only bolsters, but also hinders yeah. um, building research proposals that inform public policy and hopefully social policy. Um, and I say my, from, the, from the outset, my initial focus was on the terms of sexual violence specifically. But the problem with that, as I explored the data more and more, was that there were very, very low rates that were being reported. And I think this is going to be a trend kind of throughout my research is making the distinction between reporters into a part of violence yeah. and that's the experience. Um, so how are you able to determine the actual scale of domestic abuse and how significant is it at the moment then, given all these difficulties in determining the actual level of reporting? I think the level of reporting um, is a key thing, but... The unfortunate answer is that we can never really determine the scale, and the problem for that being is data limitations in, in that way. Um, simpler nature of the question is, is kind of weighted with uncertainty. Um, along with politicians and, and other researchers alike, we kind of, it's most arguably higher than the reported figure. Yeah. And that's always worrying, and it's worrying for kind of two reasons. Worrying that it's actually happening at that rate that we don't know, but that we also can't measure it. Um, and it, it does kind of strike me from the get-go when when we use this phrase that's synonymous with family disputes or just simple family arguments of you don't know what happens behind uh, the closed door. In a sense, the family home also applies to that violence. And I remember reading uh, a book by the two first kind of proponents of family violence who they looked at an economic analysis of family violence and interpersonal relationships and their book was was kind of aptly entitled Behind Closed Doors and it was this thing of how do we get to understand this thing that is so such a private matter. 
Um, understandably, he's also very much sitting on the fence, which I think will be my, my main kind of thing. Uh, yeah, with the increased kind of public awareness of domestic abuse and, and campaigns aimed at providing women with the necessary resources and counselling to report there and also recover from their experiences, uh, we hope this continues to broaden our understanding and allow us to gauge kind of the sheer magnitude of domestic abuse. Um, so you mentioned that more recently there have been a lot of campaigns that are looking to decrease the level of domestic violence or at the very least increase the level of reporting so we can better understand it. Uh, is there a general trend over time with regards to intimate partner violence that we see in terms um, of the scale of it and the reporting of it? This is one of the limitations that tends to undermine empirical research, particularly on looking at domestic abuse and intimate partner violence. Lack of data mapping the trends in IPV has, has meant we've had to rely on police reports. Uh, this raises a number of concerns, all of which are increasingly problematic, not only for academic purposes, but for policy purposes as well. The main one is the reporting procedure and the variations by country. Um, this was something I kind of piqued my curiosity from, from the beginning after reading several articles. Uh, for instance, Sweden was recently in the news having exceedingly high and to a large extent unprecedented levels of, of sexual violence. Spikes in sexual violence must be approached with uh, due caution and consideration, however. In, in Sweden, for instance, uh, police reports tend to report each incident of IPV as a separate case. Thus, if a woman is, um, experiences sexual assault, say, 12 times, it will be reported as 12 separate cases. But in other countries, multiple incidents will just be um, reported under one case. And so, uh, if we, therefore, Sweden will obviously seem to have much higher levels. And so, we, should, we must take like, the due consideration and caution when we actually approach um, quantitative analysis through this way. And I think, additionally, we have to frame this kind of increase or decrease in the context of changing social structures whereby women feel more inclined to report their experiences or exhibit greater levels of trust towards the central authorities and, and justice systems. Even though police forces um, and also especially focused domestic violence uh, abuse groups are heightening our awareness of the necessary need in both the academic and public policy domain, um, the degree to which this actually impacts the level of IPV may, may be misleading. Primarily, we need to distinguish between reporting experiences of, of IPV, as I've previously said, and experiencing IPV. Um, with greater levels of trust, women may more, be more inclined to report their experiences. Uh, yeah, as, a, as a friend in, in the department, actually, a diva with Chloe Lewis, she mentioned that even though we've got these higher levels of reported IPV, it doesn't mean that uh, intimate partner violence is increasing per se. Yeah. And the, it just means there's more of these women are feeling that they can actually report their experiences. So to what extent can you actually understand, given what you've said about difficulties with, um, with under-reporting and how difficult it is to determine actual trends, to what extent can you actually understand these social determinants? I think I think that's a really key point that, that you brought in. It's also been um, you brought out before, is, is that under-reporting is a major issue. Mm. Um, the level of under-reporting is one that I can't even myself kind of fathom, and to which is intrigued many researchers for over the past decade is this unreported prevents us from estimating the true level of such violence and providing more accurate estimates and predictors um, in terms of if we wanted to measure and model what were the social determinants of, the, of this violence and I think it's really tough to then map 
uh, almost frame this within a general increasing or decreasing trend. I think it's so much more complex. And if I remove myself from the empirical standpoint, um, it also presents quite a concerning and also saddening picture, one that's still in an age where women's economic empowerment um, is coming to the fore and strengthening that a proportion of women still feel, do not feel safe or feel trusting of or feel as though their cases will be treated with due yeah. attention and care and that the procedures after will, will actually be uh, satisfactory um, and kind of will be handled in that way. And it's these kind of perturbing factors um, uh, that may underline the decision to report and more importantly to not report. Of particular importance, I'd say, to intimate partner violence uh, itself is not only the nature of the crime, but the nature of the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim. The costs that are incurred for a victim who knows um, the perpetrator, that kind of intimate relationship, who they know and who they also believe, well, then there will be a reprisal for this later. That often outweighs the benefits of actually reporting. And I think the intimate nature of the relationship has the it has the potential to influence their tendency to justify the risk of reporting. Um, it is where these kind of structural factors associated with, with trust in authority and perceived levels of effectiveness may moderate the relationship. Yeah. So you spoke about how, although, the, although we've made significant progress in terms of economic empowerment of women, we've not seen similar progress in terms of trust in institutions and willingness to report in the same way. What sort of relationship have you seen then between economic empowerment and the, and the rate of intimate partner violence? So, in my own research, uh, it's mainly I've mainly been looking at the relative resource theory in in the fact of comparing women's position to men. And, and primarily, when I look at the women's economic empowerment, I want to look at that women who assume um, a high position in society occupy high positions in, in kind of occupational status matters relative to their partner, who earn more than their partner, who have higher levels of education than their partner. And although, unfortunately, with the data that we've got, this is purely associational and, and, and not causal, um, we've had, I, in my own research, I've actually found that there's been a significant, uh, well, the, there's statistical significant results that show that the likelihood of women who earn more than their partner um, appear to, re to be more likely to report having experienced sexual violence or physical violence uh, than women who earn uh, less than their partner. However, a lot of the research that was done about 30 years ago, has, and, and we still see now, is that that doesn't necessarily mean that women of lower socioeconomic status than their partner are necessarily... Um, going to be exempt from any kind of violence in that way. And now something we always have to think is that even though if we try and map this out and model it in a statistical sense that some women are more likely to experience it than others, there still seems to be this sense that no, no women are exempt from this. And that, that's the really worrying thing and, mm. and something that it shows how statistical analysis is bounded. It's bounded by limitations that there are extraneous factors that we really need to consider. Um, and, and so my research, as I say, was purely descriptive. And, and if we really want to inform public policy, and also just, as you say, as you say, just understand, we really need to build upon potentially a mixed methods approach of, of bridging the gap between qualitative and quantitative data.
So, you said there that you find that women with a higher socioeconomic status than their partner are generally more likely to uh, report cases of intimate partner violence. Could this simply be a case that they're more confident in reporting because they're, they have a stronger position in society? Or do, or do you think it's necessarily related to the relationship they have with their partner? Um, I, I think that's a good point that you make about... Because in terms of if women who have a higher socioeconomic status, let's say, they earn more than their partner, a lot of them may be almost financially independent. Um, so they contribute more to the family. And so they may be, in a way, uh, more likely to do that. They Another thing that I thought, with women who have a higher education, they have... They may have a greater awareness of the services around to report in. Um, they have a, may have a greater network of people to actually work with in, in, in that way. Whereas women of lower socioeconomic status may, may not. But that, at the same time, um, does not deny the fact that we can try and distinguish between a definitive gap of uh, lower socioeconomic status. Women are more or less likely than uh, women of higher socioeconomic status in that way. Um, there could be other attributes within the family as well. And I think one of the things that I'm also interested in is that we're always looking for, is it something to do with the woman? Are we looking at things that the woman has got characteristics that make her more likely? Mm. And yet this seems to be shifting the focus from actually the perpetrator of the crime, who, who, is, who is the man in that way. And... Um, as I've been to some friends, we we did discuss that intimate partner violence is not something simply that's the norm. Um, it's an there's an agency to it. People actively perpetrate intimate partner violence, and, and so why there, there's a real worry that focusing too much on the woman and her thing and and her characteristics can actually um, almost yeah move away from from the focus that should be on the man at this point and the importance that they. That, they have in, in this. So then to put the focus on the man, is there a very significant effect you've seen that makes men more likely to commit intimate partner violence? Um, there's been kind of uh, several that I've, I've looked at and it's mainly from the public health perspective that I try and look at those. Mainly I've been having a look at partners' alcohol consumption. So uh, most of the, the research we've done within public health that looks at intimate partner violence Quite a few studies by the World Health Organization have tried to measure, say, daily consumption of a partner's um, alcohol consumption. And, and for me, when I actually looked at it, my research, albeit to a, to a much lesser degree and, and using probably not the best of data, I also did find that women whose partners had would drink multiple times a day are much more likely to have experienced it. But again, as I say, to, to report their, their experiences. Um, another thing that, that was quite actually was quite interesting that it was a paper done by Atkinson and, and others I think it was in 2005 and looked at this gender resource theory and, and something that I, I really think I'd like to get into is measuring the level of gender uh, traditionalism and attitudinal research is really tough but it can also be really quite eye-opening and, and in this way they measured the level of gender traditionalism and whether this moderated the relationship between um, into a partner violence and, and uh, being perpetrated. And so, and what they found is that women whose partners held more traditional gender ideologies, and for these women who also, it was higher for those women who had, 
in terms of they earn more than their partner, that this traditional gender ideology almost strengthened the relationship between IPV and, and earning more than your, your partner, which was quite interesting mm-hmm. in that way. Obviously, economic empowerment is a goal of most uh, of women is a goal of most societies in terms of achieving gender equality. So, do you find that on a societal level, if there is stronger economic empowerment for women, that the, the societies like to have higher rates of IPV? Um, I think in a way that what we've got to be very conscious about is that does this mean that increasing the woman's economic empowerment may lead to them being more likely? to experience this because in that way it's saying that economic empowerment is actually a, a very worrying thing in that way. And, and no I think obviously um, as it's emerged and it's strengthened it's, it's a key thing that we should really really actually well obviously support and I don't think that that's the way I think again it's it's shifting our analysis from uh, looking at the woman to looking at the man what, why are these factors of, of certain men being this way um, what have they done? Um, there's a few intervention programs that are particularly useful at, at addressing accountability, what, why have men offended, and then addressing them in the way of asking um, what were the reasons, what the rationale be all behind this. And I think that's a key thing to look at, um, particularly in an era where gender equality is now becoming part of the public policy spectrum. Mm. And particularly within Europe, with certain countries having quite high levels, and also pioneers of gender equality, I think that's a key thing to look at. Because I remember reading a paper um, by uh, Juan Merlo and Enrique Gracia, and they they looked at this idea of the Nordic paradox, that in countries that have higher levels of gender equality, um, why are we seeing, or why are we seeing high levels of reported um, domestic violence and, and one of the, the assumptions they made was that is it this idea that because states are in almost they're, they're pushing for greater gender equality that is boosting women's economic empowerment giving them more opportunities to to engage are, are men reacting to this as being a way as though the traditional norms of society are not actually um, being adhered to and then again, we need to think about, are these men holding these gender ideologies? And there's several caveats to that in that way, because what we have to see is that even not all men who hold traditional um, gender ideologies are necessarily violent in that way. So I definitely think societal structural factors are, are a key thing to think about. Um, part of the goal of your research, as you said, was to inform public policy. Um, have you found particular legislative changes that have been powerful in reducing the effect of IPV? The the problem if we turn in terms of if we look at legislation in terms of prosecution in that way and I would say that's a really it's a hotly debated topic um, in both the, the policy and socio-legal literatures. The number of women who report crimes is very low yet the number of those crimes that are actually prosecuted and successfully prosecuted um it's substantially lower. And so, for instance, prosecution can be both arduous and expensive. The longevity of it uh, has many implications as well, not only for the, in terms of socio-legal terms, but in terms of the women as well. I mean, the legal process can surface traumatic memories of their ordeal or ordeals because for a lot of these women, this isn't just a singular event. 
And so although I'm not well versed in, in that socio-legal side, in my view, there's a potential for more effective legislation mm. uh, to be implemented in the future. The sheer intimate nature of these crimes means that stage legislation needs to start and initially focus on ways of, of improving the rates of response and almost instilling this trust that the people that you're going to report to, that it's going to be effective in the end. Um, in terms of harsh points, I think efforts to improve like the accountability for a, a partner right should also be coupled with an educational element. For, for a lot of, of men who commit these these crimes, it, there seems to be this lack of um, understanding within, particularly in terms of gender equality. What I find is, is that gender equality um, should be omnipresent in terms of it shouldn't just be restricted to this idea of a gender pay gap or equal equal um, chances, opportunities to get jobs in the workplace. This needs to permeate into the home. It needs to transfer from the boundaries of simply the workplace, expand it to the home. And I think only through education and and which public policy can obviously push for it, that I think that will be a key thing that we need to think about. Um, in terms of understanding the likelihood that people hold more traditional gender values, which makes them more likely to um, commit IPV. Has the recent influx of migration in European countries, um, from countries that may hold more traditional gender values, increased the rate of IPV in these countries? It's something that's been made, that a lot has been made of, particularly in far-right media, and perhaps too much has been made of by elements of media. Do you think there is any grounding to that argument, or...? I think that's a, to be honest, Nick, I think that's a great point that you raise. Um, it's this implicit and in some cases kind of explicit generation of these crimes associated with migrants. Um, I think I'll refer to Sweden again, and particularly in Scandinavia as an example. One of the things that, uh, again, piqued my curiosity is, is a debate around sexual violence with a litany of claims from a number of Swedish and other European news outlets of an inextricable link drawn between migration and sexual violence, which was, and then Sweden was then labelled the rape capital of Europe in 2012. To the best of my knowledge, there's been no link drawn between migration and IPV um, or violence against women in that, in just in the general sense, which has any sound empirical grounding or is supported by any substantial empirical evidence. Um, more importantly, any associations and evidence that I've presented have been from sources that, to put it lightly, are tenuous and, to put it strongly, as you mentioned, seem to come from far-right media outlets. This isn't, however, um, to undermine kind of the magnitude of the events um, seen in Cologne in 2015-2016 in New Year, nor to deny that they were very distressing scenes. Yet it seemed the focus has moved away, again, it was moved away from the woman in this sense and instead outlets seem to use it more as a, a chance to link it to migration and almost tangentially the the people became more focused on the migration aspect and not on the support the vulnerability in the recovery of these women um as much as we should focus on the perpetrator most importantly um we need to really focus on um helping these uh, having women report their crime but also it's this following it after, because once it's reported, there needs to be things after. I think another point I need to, think needs to be given due consideration is sort of the migrant status of these women. For many of these reports, particularly from news outlets, it seemed to be reports of local women being physically or sexually assaulted by migrant men. 
it seems the experience of migrant women over has been relatively unexplored, and I even more so for many migrant women in Europe. Uh, we see that the services and the opportunities simply to report um, just aren't there, and this can be this can be due to kind of a multitude of things. Potential language barriers are a key thing. Citizenship and legal status can also be a major thing. And so research on this is, is still nascent. However, I, I've actually just recently seen a, a, an interesting new project from the University of Birmingham, uh, which is focusing on sexual and gender-based violence during the refugee journey, um, particularly the experience of Syrian refugees who have experienced sexual and gender-based violence on their refugee journey into Europe. So I definitely think the migration aspect is becoming something that people are wanting to explore within quantitative and qualitative research. But I 100% agree with you that these exaggerations um, from far far media outlets, it seems that people are being, in terms of it's not it's not only tenuous, it's they're being motivated by almost ulterior anti-immigrant um, agendas. Is the presence of ulterior motives in reporting around IPV a particular obstacle to making progress and actually understanding it? I think so. I think um, a lot of these things are, when you say kind of ulterior motives, the, when they become the thing of why do we really want to look at sexual violence, why do we really want to understand it. For me, it needs to be, again, are we looking in terms? Are you thinking kind of in terms of media outlets and things like that? Uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I think yeah, that's a different thing because a lot of the unobservable factors that we can't have a look at is who are these people who are reporting this? Um, are we going to focus on police crime reports or are we going to focus on um, certain interviews or different kinds of uh, quantitative data that? hasn't been um, authenticated by certain academic institutions and things like that. And I think that that's really key. Although police crime reports are, in 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 my opinion, um, definitely need to be improved that reporting rate, I would definitely take them over any media news outlet that is using some sort of data that I just would not um, in that way improve. And I think it's a definite obstacle because when people see this big headline of, of something, I remember one of the things that when I was actually about to start my, my master's thesis, actually got me quite interested in, was this whole link um, between um, migration, this influx of migration and this increase in sexual violence. And it, my initial thought was, I'd really like to challenge that assumption. I didn't in the end purely because of um, data limitations. My, my focus took a, a, another direction, but most definitely the, these these claims that are being made are substantiated by, and then the the evidence that is used is, is very poor. And I think the only way that we can really rectify the situation is by gathering good data. And to be honest, and, and then as I say again, unfortunately, I think most of my answers are going to be quite nuanced in this way. But the data has to be complemented by actually talking to these people who've experienced it. And so for me, that that's a key thing that. We should always, as you should do with any social science or in terms of any humanities or any kind of research-based thing, you should always have a look at the authenticity of your sources before you kind of base those claims. So, but is is it then very difficult? Because as you said, you trust 
police reports over most other data with regards to this, but um, particularly in the case of incident of popular violence, there's a significant sort of dark figure that we really don't know. So what data do you generally use to make your um, conclusions and what what would be your ideal data set? So for me, in terms of police crime, crime data, I would say it's much better than um, what some of the far-right media outlets may be using. But actually, relative to the data I've used, police crime reports are very poor. Um, the data I would use... Well, there was a study done in 2012 by the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights, and it was a data set done on violence against women. It was one of the first actual cross-national um, kind of studies that was taken since um, the International Victimization Survey that actually looked at um, facets that, that used gender, people who are quite well versed in gender equality and also gender-based violence and they used that to focus on um, different theories such as absolute resource theories, relative resource theories, gender resource theories, almost looking at the political economy as well, the political aspect of it. And they used that to frame these questions to ask a certain women. Um, and this is from reporting this came from reporting sexual harassment all the way to reporting really severe um, crimes of, of sexual violence and physical violence. And I definitely think in that way, that kind of data is good. But the problem we have is, is that that data is cross-sectional. So in other words, we're only taking it at one time point. For, data, for this and, and for most social science um, areas to actually expand, we need to begin to develop a longitudinal analysis. In other words, we want to be able to take it at different time points so we can actually almost isolate what is the cause of this. The real limitation and something that I always worry about is that we can never determine the cause of this because we only have data on associations, nothing causal. And if I look at it purely from an economic perspective, um, we're going to have to focus mainly on um, building a good survey um, methodology to be able to measure these different um, instances of this, um, intimate partner violence over time. That's the only way you can really isolate, or at least try and isolate the effect that you want. Are there also difficulties in comparing cross-culturally and across countries? Because... Firstly, if you use police data, they're different, as you mentioned with the example of Sweden, different ways of calculating. But also, the survey data may not stretch to regions, other regions of the world, like perhaps Southeast Asia, I know personally, yeah. have very bad reporting rates yep. for partner violence. So is yep. that a problem? For oh, 100%. Um, very good. Uh, that's a very good point you bring up. I mean, in terms of cross-culturally, it, it's, it's very difficult. Um, any kind of comparative research in which you have different ways of reporting any sort of data brings about myriad intricacies um, and then the practicalities of actually the research becomes a lot a lot harder, a lot more, more difficult. Um, it then again, we then need to think of, okay, what factors that we may, be, may not be able to observe immediately maybe influencing this. So for instance, trust, trust in institutions. That's a key thing that could moderate. We then also have to look at, um, as I mentioned earlier, general traditionalism. 
the disparity within societies that have that adhere to quite traditional um, traditional unequal gender norms that almost set the tone for many men to adhere to um, compared to countries that have um, have kind of pushed for more gender equalizations and, and another thing we need to keep in mind I think without proper measures in this way cross-cultural research will always be hindered um, but the thing is a lot of people are now bringing out key ways to do that one thing that I'd, I'd like to add as well um, that kind of surfaces from this discussion is is the idea of some of the women some of the most vulnerable women that have experienced um, intimate partner violence and are now in the position that they are in are women who are in homeless shelters and in victim shelters. And the problem we have to think is these people aren't included in our survey. I know specifically from the FRA survey that they weren't included in this. And thus, we're missing a major proportion of, of women who potentially have um, experienced, now arguably experienced some of the most severe forms, severe forms that have may have the, um, kind of have led them to actually leave uh, their home, leave uh, the comfort um, that they had, any security, into the financial security, and, and things that may have had a, a really big emotional um, traumatic impact on them. And so, I think both of those things, cross culturally, but also within within a within um, within kind of country research as well, that's a key thing we need to think think about. So, what would you say is currently the most interesting or perhaps cutting edge work going on in the field? Um, I mean, yeah, that's that's quite a tough one because at the moment, which is 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 actually really exciting, is that there's a lot of work that's being done. I think the key thing we need that is that this is both timely and highly relevant research yeah. that constantly needs to be addressed. The worrying thing, obviously, is that the more the fact that we need to keep doing this means that our isn't there. Um, I'd say for my um, in terms of social science research. The use of spatial analysis from exploring the effectiveness of police response um, to cause of domestic abuse to mapping highly volatile areas that experience very un, un, almost unprecedented levels of intimate partner violence. Alternatively, the, the multi contextual approach um, is very interesting, focusing on the impact of country and neighborhood characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, I think I mentioned him earlier, Enrique Gracia, uh, he was kind of a former research fellow. Um, psychology here in Oxford. Um, he's conducting some really interesting work on the impact of a country's level of gender equality on individual level relationships to the contextual neighbourhood factors moderating the link between alcohol abuse and to a partner violence. But I think actually it's the work that's being done in terms of at the intersection of academia and social policy. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to return to that idea of we need to focus more on this active engagement of the man to perpetrate this violent act. And there's a very, very interesting and an important um, batterer intervention program uh, conducted by Marisol Leela, also um, actually the University of, of Valencia, um, which works with male offenders of intimate partner violence. Um, this is particularly important for focusing on, on the men observing their accountability for IPV. Their responses to this but also for educating them. I think, as, as I mentioned, this educational aspect, I think, is, is key. Um, because for a lot of people, gender equality is just a, quite a restricted term. 
and I think from a, also a survey research perspective, there needs to be a key insight into women's experience and their partner's traits. Um, and seldom kind of do we, we gain the core insight as a perpetrator. And I think this is really key. I think with this unique approach to um, the actual Marisol Leela and her team um, will try and explore the core motivations for acting out rather. Yeah. So as you said, the um, this research is all going on kind of the intersection of political science and social policy stuff um, in understanding why it occurs, the nature of the offenders, and, and actually education. The international community does try a lot to reduce the rate of intimate partner violence. The UN has a number of programs dedicated to gender equality, the reduction of intimate yeah. partner violence. Have these been effective and what could they do to be more effective? I think, coming from my, my standpoint, I, I would say I, I'm not um, the best person to, to kind of chat to about how effective these things are, but I think they're they're key to have. Um, the fact that people are actually responding to this, um, that it's not becoming, it's not being treated as though this is just simply the norm, or simply as though it, it's it's a local matter that local authorities can deal with. The fact that it's almost attained this international recognition, almost of an epidemic of, of domestic abuse, domestic violence, I, I think is, is absolutely key. And I think you can only progress from there. Um, it should be informed, again, by academic research. But I think it, it, it's key that there are international programs being funded by this. And I think um, there should be almost this consortium, also a network of people, to focus on these, on these issues. And so yeah, I believe the international community, I think just in a way, it's good that people is heightening the awareness of this problem and the extent of the problem. Um, but if, in terms of effectiveness, unfortunately, I, I don't know if I could really answer that, that question. What would you say is the most significant obstacle to reducing intimate partner violence? The, this was actually quite an interesting question that I had, had a discussion with, with someone uh, yesterday about. And it's that we... It's again, uh, I do apologise kind of sitting on the fence, but this idea that there are several factors mm, yeah. um, in terms of this which impede our attempts to understand and also hinder our analyses to, to explain um, and then obviously hinder the preventative measures. Each one is interconnected, but I'd definitely say it would the two major ones would be patriarchy and trust. I think my reason for patriarchy um, and my view would be Inherent with my quantitative background, I probably I, I would consider trust as being a main thing. But patriarchy is, is a real thing that we need to think of, particularly from a theoretical standpoint. Um, initially, the first thing that came to mind um, is that it becomes more apparent that the role that unequal gender gender norms play in legitimating the use of violence was key. For some men, violence is not a simple backlash could, to some extent, uh, be considered a legitimate option. Mm. In some sense, a preconditioned expectation that if all else fails, primarily through um, a certain failure or something, that they can just resort to violence as, as this way. My friend raised this pertinent point, intimate partner violence, um, again, doesn't just happen. It's this whole idea of agency that's actively, actively perpetrated. And my view would be that this, this can stem from much greater structural factors. I remember you, you, you talked about the societal factors as well. And that 
with as um, societies uh, kind of push for gender equalization, it seems that these unequal gender norms, it seems like people or societies are departing from them, slowly dismantling them. And so what this is leading to is that it's not now becoming the norm. Whereas some men might actually see that the only way to deal with this is to act out violently, and for them that, that's normality, I think. But as I say, on the other hand, trust is also very important. Um, if they don't trust the authority and the justice and then um, and the justice system, then how can we ever expect them to report the crimes that have happened and, and something that will actually force them to go into extensive detail about some some horrendous ordeals that they, they've kind of gone through and I think one limitation of the focus on trust, however, is that there's this inherent expectation that women have to report their crimes. And, and I know I can repeatedly go back to it, but it's the policy focus needs to be shifted to men. We need to focus more on men. This dependence on women to re report their crimes may derive purely from a survey research, research perspective, but we have to now, we have to remove ourselves from the empirical standpoint and start thinking that let, let's, be, let's try and be more realistic about this. And the person who's in the most vulnerable position is the woman. And so let's start pushing to see this accountability for, for men. So, and I think that is a, so in my mind, patriarchy and, and trust are, are two things that we really need to look at. All right. Thank you so much for talking to the Beacon today, Patrick. It's been wonderful talking to you. Uh, thank you, everyone who's listened. I've been Nicholas Shin, and this has been The Beacon.